Father, we are so thankful to you for Elder Benny and for his many years of ministry here in PPH. And we honor him who is over us in the Lord. We pray that you will grant him good health, good cheer, uh, strength and wisdom for the days ahead in ministry as well as in the university where you have placed him. Grant to him a strong witness uh, and grant to him also wisdom to guide his children and his grandchildren. So we are so blessed to have uh, uh, Elder Benny with us and we pray your mightiest, richest blessings upon him. We pray too for ourselves now as we receive the word of God with glad hearts. We pray that we might examine the word of God for ourselves too. And we pray for Brother Kapo as he takes the sermon. Lord, grant to him an anointing from above as he delivers your word faithfully um, to us, Lord. Strengthen him for today as well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm nowhere yet near Elder Benny's age, but I'm getting there, reading glasses. Please turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. We're going to read two passages, verses 1 to 15 of chapter 5, and then chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. If you have your Bibles, please follow with me. I don't have it on the slides. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. Verse 6, verse, verse six The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land He had solemnly promised the ancestors to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up these sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. 
Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 7, reading from verse 1 to 13. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth in the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Verse 3, When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on the heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against the enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you it is devoted to destruction. Verse 13, Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemy until you remove them. We continue our short study on the book of Joshua that Dr. Raj introduced two weeks ago. didn't quite show. Anyway, um, this slide is not complete. There are, okay. You, you might remember this slide from, from uh, Dr. Raj's message that shows the two main divisions in the book of Joshua. The conquest and the division of the promised land. And of course, there's an introduction and then there's a conclusion. Joshua is a narrative that extends into the book of Judges. And while Joshua concentrates on the initial phase of the conquest, Judges describes Israel's struggles to possess the land against opposition from the Canaanites. And one thing is clear. The conquest of the land was not a 
accomplished during Joshua's lifetime because large tracts of land still remain in enemy territory. And the conquest extended over many generations and was not completed fully until the time of King David and his son Solomon. So after crossing the River Jordan, the game plan for Joshua was to mount three quick military attempts or military campaigns. You can see from this map here, the first one is through the center of the land to try to gain control of the highlands. The second campaign was to the south, and you can read that in chapter 10, and then the third campaign was to the north. So these were the three campaigns, or three military strategy, or the strategies which Joshua employed in order to attain the conquest of the land that the Lord had promised. From a military standpoint, the Israelites had a difficult time extending their control into the promised land. They were up against chariots and fortified cities, plus other non-Canaanite peoples like the Philistines and the Moabites, all trying to expand their territory over the same piece of real estate. Against this backdrop, it's easy to appreciate how overwhelming were the odds against a successful campaign of conquest. So the big question, how did this ragtag army that had no skill, no battlefield training, no sophisticated weapons, and whose ancestors were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and after spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness, how did they overcome chariots, wall cities, and well-armed professional soldiers? The answer, we all know, is simple. It was the Lord who fought for them and gave them victory. Here's an outline of the text that we have, Joshua chapter 5 to 7. Joshua chapter 5 opens with the people of Israel having crossed the Jordan. The enemy was in disarray from reports of this group of people called the Habiru that emerged from the wilderness, protected by a god who did powerful miracles against the Egyptians and all the other races living in Canaan at that time. But instead of the Israelites capitalizing on their fear-stricken enemies' low morale, the Lord instructs Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel in Gilgal and therefore making them quite vulnerable to enemy attack during the period of recuperation. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant promises to Abraham and to his descendants, the nation of Israel. Why get circumcised now, after crossing the Jordan, just before the attack? Because if they didn't get circumcised, they will not be able to do the next thing in verse 10 of chapter 5, and that is to celebrate the Passover. As Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 49 tells us, only the community of Israel, circumcised foreigners and male slaves, may eat of the Passover. And this was only the third time that Israel had kept the Passover. First was in Egypt, the second was in Mount Sinai, when the Lord gave the law, and the third was here in Gilgal. And after that, verse 11 tells us, of chapter 5, the manna stopped coming, to signify that the days of wilderness wandering have ended, and the Israelites were to eat of the produce of the land of Canaan. Then in verses 13 to 15, as we've just read earlier, 
we find Joshua not in the camp of Israel at Gilgal, but out by the city of Jericho, probably on some kind of an intel mission, gathering information about the city and its fortifications in preparation for his attack. He was all likelihood strategizing about how to besiege, how to attack Jericho, a fortified city, without battering rams, without catapults, without scaling ladders or moving towers. And as he puzzled over this, Joshua had a strange encounter with a man with a drawn sword. And this man identifies himself neither as Israel's enemy nor Joshua's ally, but as the captain of the Lord's army. In chapter 6, the familiar story of the Battle of Jericho using some unorthodox military techniques and the rescue of Rahab the prostitute, who in God's providence became one of the ancestors of King David and the Messiah. In chapter 7, there's a tragic reversal. The Israelites suffered heavy losses when they tried to attack Ai. God later revealed to Joshua that the cause of their defeat was an act of disobedience among the people. That sin was traced to Achan, or like Richard will always say, Achan, from the tribe of Judah, who coveted a robe, some gold and silver from the plunder which God had earlier commanded were to be completely destroyed because they were under the ban. So Joshua assembled the people in an act of national repentance to identify the guilty one and his family and stone them to death before the Lord. So that, in a nutshell, is Joshua chapter 5, 6, and 7. What are the key takeaways from these three chapters on the subject of consecration? In, in Hebrew, to consecrate has, has two different meanings. One, to consecrate means to make clean, to purify, to sanctify, to set apart from the unholy. And that is why in the book of Leviticus, the law prescribes many, many rituals, not just Leviticus, Numbers and so on. The first five books of Moses, the, the law prescribes many rituals for the Israelites to say, wash their clothes when they come into contact with unclean things such as a dead animal or a dead human body. Secondly, the word consecrate comes from a combination of two different Hebrew words and together they mean to fill the open hand. To fill the open hand. Now, imagine a priest standing beside the altar in the temple with his hands open to receive an offering from you. You are a worshipper in the days of the Old Testament you bring an offering to the temple and the priest with open hand receives it. And once you place your offering into the priest's hands, it is consecrated to God, dedicated to Him for His purposes. It no longer belongs to you, but to God. And it is holy because God is holy. And in the New Testament, the most well-known call to consecration is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So, consecration is what God expects of us. But we know from our daily experience that it's very hard to consecrate ourselves to God, to give of ourselves to the Lord. Every Sunday, we can sing with all our hearts, 
take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. But when the rubber hits the road, when we return to the grind of daily life during the weekdays, at home with our rowdy kids, at the office with our difficult bosses or scheming colleagues, or when one of our cell group members discourages us with his or her behaviour, when our business venture fails, when we get a notice from an employer that our services are no longer needed, when we squabble with our spouses or teenage children, when a loved one departs in a mindless road accident because a drunkard runs over him or her, when our doctor calls up and asks to see us urgently, or when we see our foul-mouthed neighbour strike the winning million-dollar lottery. Consecration is the last thing on our minds. Won't you agree? But why is it so hard to consecrate ourselves to God? Why is it so hard to consecrate ourselves to God? I think from my reading of the text in Joshua 5-7, to I think it boils down to three deficiencies, three things that are missing in our lives. Firstly, where's the faith? Jacques Illou, I think that's how to pronounce his name, he's a French sociologist and uh, theologian. He once described our age, our modern age, as a technological age. Not, not so much in terms of IT or science, you know, as you associate it. Yeah, sure, there's an element of that. But in terms of what he calls technique, we learn problem-solving techniques in school. Doctors have surgical techniques when they treat patients. Medical researchers apply proven techniques to test experimental drugs to show they are safe for human consumption. IT experts apply various techniques to write code, computer code, to run automated processes. And military strategists develop techniques or doctrine to fight and win battles. So, what military technique did Joshua use? Which famous army general developed Joshua's military tactics for the conquest of Canaan? Was it General George S. Patton from the U.S. Army? General Moshe Dayan of Israel? Field Marshal Rommel, the famous World War II German commander known as the Desert Fox? Or was it Sun Tzu and his Bing Fa? Or was it the unknown Chinese scholar who wrote the 36 stratagems? Instead of proven military techniques or tactics, Joshua, in obedience to the Lord, got all the male soldiers of Israel circumcised just before battle. Can you beat that? I'm not circumcised, but I understand it takes three days. You can check with the doctors. Three days for recovery, right? It's painful, I suppose, even with anesthesia. Maybe they didn't have anesthesia in those days. Imagine you were one of the soldiers present at that time. What would you be thinking? You're told to get circumcised before fighting a battle. Joshua, you must be crazy, right? You get us all circumcised before the campaign starts and we would be easy meat for the Canaanites during the period of recuperation. Next, you tell us to celebrate the Passover, which is a very solemn festival. And if the enemy spies came during, came during that time, while we were celebrating the Passover, 
after recuperating from the circumcision, they will report back to the commanders that this will be the perfect time to strike a blow to these Hebrews. How, how dumb can you be, Joshua? How dumb can you be? Miraculously, no enemies attacked. Equally miraculously, after the, what some people might consider juvenile battle plan, the battle plan of marching around this wall city called Jericho in silence, once a day for six days, on the day seven, you marched around seven times, the walls came tumbling down when the priests sounded their ram horns and the Israelites gave a mighty shout and charged into the city. You know, brothers and sisters, it takes great faith in the ways of God in order to obey Him. And it's hard to commit ourselves to God when His ways are so much above our ways and His thoughts so far above our thoughts. In the economy of God, everything is upside down. The first shall be the last, the last shall be the first. To be great, you must be servant. To be exalted, you must humble yourself. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that God chose the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish things to embarrass the wise. These are the values of God's kingdom. And most of us, all of us, understand it, mentally agree to these values, but we lack the faith to live by them. Don't we rather be strong than weak? Don't we rather be smart and wise than foolish? We rationalize too much. We reason too hard. We count the cost and do our calculations a hundred times over, and then we decide that obeying God 100% is a lousy investment because it yields negative returns in this world. And because of this, we fear consecrating ourselves because we don't want to be hypocrites. We find it hard to consecrate ourselves because we have little faith. Secondly, where's the fight? This was a point that Raj urged us all to Think hard about two weeks ago. To be consecrated is to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart. And to be set apart, we need to be cleansed. And the Old Testament contains many instructions about ceremonial cleansing. We talked about it a while ago. Washing of the altar, the utensils in the temple as part of the temple dedication program. Washing of clothes stained with blood or after it comes into contact with unclean animals or dead persons. But the cleansing is not just ceremonial. That's just the form, the outward part of it. The Achan episode in Joshua chapter 7 reminds us that cleansing is not just outward, external. It is a deliberate, focused separation from anything that defiles. What was Achan's sin? Jericho had been placed under the ban and was to be completely destroyed. The instructions were clear. Leave nothing alive. Burn it down. Everything goes. But Achan coveted some of the things that were under the ban. 
And as a result, the Lord held the whole nation of Israel accountable for the act of this one man and withheld his blessing until the matter was corrected. The way that Joshua dealt with Achan might seem harsh. Achan and his whole family were stoned to death and burned before God's anger abated. Why so serious? What's the big deal about keeping some things under the ban? Did God have to be so harsh? Let a man be held accountable for his own sins. After all, doesn't the Bible say, whatever a man reaps, that shall he sows. But why account the whole nation guilty for one man's sin? Let his wife and children go. Why did 3,000 people have to die? 3,000 people from the Israel's army who were killed in the battle of Ai for Achan's sin with their lives. Why so harsh? The arithmetic don't add up. One to 3,000. Where's the equivalence? Overkill. About 1,400 years later, after the incident in Joshua 7, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in mighty power upon the infant church, a Jewish couple named Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of real estate and brought some of the proceeds from the sale to the Apostle Peter. Nothing wrong, except that they made it as though they had given all the sales proceeds to the church. Peter knew their deception and rebuked them. And they literally, literally dropped it. Jesus reminds us, and this is what also Dr. Raj has also mentioned last two weeks back. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, that we need to be ruthless with ourselves. If our right eye causes us to sin, gorge it out. If our right hand causes us to sin, cut it off. Because it is better for us to enter heaven with one eye or maimed than for our whole body to go to hell. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Paul uses the analogy of a Christian as a soldier who does not get entangled with civilian affairs but tries his best to please his commander, Jesus Christ. And the whole image in these verses in Joshua in Ephesians, in 2 Timothy, is one of warfare. Warfare against the enemies of the Lord, warfare against our flesh, warfare against spiritual powers in high places who seek to destroy the church. So brothers and sisters, we have to fight. Whether like it or not, we are in a spiritual battle. When God calls us to consecrate ourselves, just like the Israelites in Joshua, it's preparation for warfare. It's preparation for warfare. And soldiers must be obedient and disciplined. So it is hard to consecrate ourselves. So where's the fight? Where's, where's the faith? Where's the fight? Finally, Where's the fear? When Joshua met this mysterious man with the drawn sword, this is what Bible scholars and theologians call a theophany, a manifestation of the Lord himself in physical form that human eyes can see. When Joshua asked him, whose side are you on? His answer is, I am neither for you, Joshua, nor your enemies, but I am here as the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, 
I'm not here to take sides, Joshua. I'm here to take over. Not to take sides, but to take over. Verse 14, Joshua fell on his face to, his, to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? This was the response of fear, of submission, and of worship. And as if to confirm Joshua's realization of who he was, the captain of the Lord's host said to him, Remove your sandals, your dirty sandals, your unclean sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. About 40 years before that, Joshua's mentor, Moses, met God at a bush that was on fire. Oh, sorry, more than 40 years. That was on fire but did not burn. And God told him the same thing. Remove your sandals, Moses, because the ground on which you stand is holy. Was there something special about the ground? In chemical terms? Where did the sacredness, the holiness come from? You know, the land was just soil, right? It's, it's, it has all the chemical properties of soil, maybe some rock, some stone, some silicon, carbon, some fallen leaves, whatever. The holiness derived not from the soil itself, but because God was there. And God is a holy, awe-inspiring, fear-inducing God. And what was Joshua's response? He was the same as Moses. They fell face down in worship. You know, brothers and sisters, our God is an awesome God. If you read A.W. Tozer's book, you know, he's got a book that talks about this, attributes of God. And, you know, the words that are being mentioned, grand, transcendent, sublime, power, incomprehensible, self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, unchanging, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. I don't understand all the words, huh, to be honest. Loving, gracious, altogether wonderful, absolutely holy. Words cannot describe this God. And we fall at His feet as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 because the prophet recognized his own unworthiness and uncleanness before a pure and holy God. Or as Ezekiel did when he had a vision of the glory of the Lord and fell face down in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. Or as John, the beloved disciple, did in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, when he saw a vision of the glorified Lord, the Lamb that was slain. And all of them, all of them, these people fell face down, terror-stricken, overwhelmed by the vision of the glory of the Lord. This, my brothers and sisters, is the God whom we worship. You know, we, we often love to, to speak of the tender mercies of our God, the loving kindness of our God, the compassions of our Lord. And that is, that is most certainly true. And we take great comfort and find immense peace knowing His unfailing love and His continuing faithfulness. But sometimes we forget our God is a consuming fire. The fire that appeared on Mount Zion when Moses received the Ten Commandments. And as Proverbs reminds us, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of true wisdom. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only and take your oaths in His name. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 to 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Someone explain what it means to fear the Lord this way. I've not been to this place, but I'm told that this is CN Tower in Toronto. And it's one of the world's tallest buildings, freestanding structures. Well, you go into the website and you do some research, you will realize that it's about 1,800 feet above ground. 1,800 feet. The elevator that takes you all the way up at the side of the tower is a glass enclosure so that you can pretty much see your ascent and the city of Toronto falling away at your feet, just inches away from the door. And they've even developed this, this thing called the edge walk for adrenaline junkies. You can see a picture of it here. These guys are crazy, I think. But they're adrenaline junkies, so they get a thrill. Okay, 1,800 feet above ground level. And when the elevator reaches the observation deck on the 113th floor, 113, okay, you step out and realize that the floor is made of glass. That's the feet. That's glass. And right underneath there, the car park, the tower, 1,800 feet below. And the people can walk on it, look straight down, and kids who go there would jump up and down, right? And laugh and scream with delight. Testing the law of gravity and the strength of building materials. If you're scared of heights, a bit scared of heights like me, it's quite an experience. Contrast that with the Grand Canyon. Also, I have not visited this place. Apparently, you can stand at the south rim of the Grand Canyon and peer 6,000 feet straight down. And at the Grand Canyon, you're not separated from your descent by blocks of glass two and a half inches thick like CN Tower. So every year, apparently, an average of four to five people die while visiting because, as, as, as one website says, there were overzealous, overly zealous photographic endeavours that caused some of them to lose their lives. Still, the Grand Canyon is so beautiful that people, whether they fear heights or not, are just drawn to it. You cannot, you should not do anything foolish near the edge. But the awesome beauty that caused people to fear also draw the same people towards it in awe. So when the Bible talks about fearing God, is it talking about the kind of fear one might feel at CN Tower, standing on the glass floor on the 113th floor, that may give you a thrill or a quick feeling of awe, but you know you are safe. You're completely safe. Apparently, it's supposed to take the weight, it can support the weight of six hippopotamus. Right? That's what the website says. Huh? Six hippopotamus. So from that perspective, fearing God doesn't really mean fear. It means respect. It means to be in awe. But you don't need to be in terror of Him. Is that what the Bible means? 
just awe, just reverence? No. The more accurate way to see it is the kind of fear one feels at the Grand Canyon. Amazingly beautiful, but also absolutely terrifying. Because people who acted foolishly have died. And that, brothers and sisters, should be the way we fear God. Indeed, thousands of Israelites have perished in the wilderness because God sent plagues, opened the ground to swallow up people alive, brought Pharaoh's chariots down into the depths of the Red Sea, caused Ananias and Sapphira to literally drop dead. And one day, will judge the living and the dead condemning the righteous, sorry, condemning the unrighteous to eternal fire. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the God we need to fear. And that's what it means to fear the Lord. Lack of faith, lack of faith, lack of fight, lack of fear. We often suffer from these deficiencies. But when all is said and done, it is not our faith, it is not our fighting spirit, it is not even the fear of God as we have described it. That is a real impetus for consecrating ourselves. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it is the love of Christ, the amazing sacrificial love of Christ that led him to the cross, and it is the same love that compels us to give ourselves wholly to him. You know, during the Old Testament times, the altar the altar where sacrifices were offered up to God. The, the altar is the place where sacrifices were offered up to God, right? We know that. And the greater the sacrifice, the bigger the sacrifice, the stronger the fire will blaze. And God's fire falls only on the sacrifice at the altar. When the altar is empty, there is no fire. And we can be sure that when we give our all to Him, we will find the fullness of joy from the fire from the Lord, the power of the Spirit that will fall on us and enable us to live a consecrated life before Him. I'm going to pause here and hand the time back to Tim for the communion and the offering. Can I urge all of you, all of us, to remain in the spirit of prayerfulness and reflection? ourselves as we take the communion. Can I invite the communion service to distribute the wine and the bread?
Let's use this song to prepare our hearts. Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and after he's broken it gave thanks and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread together in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's take the blood together. Please pass the cups to the side of the aisle. part of our worship is your offering if you are a visitor with us don't feel obliged to put anything into the bank just pass it on to the next person 
communion service to distribute the offering back as well. we thank you for your great blessings in our lives and we want to honour you Father with what we've given into the bank Lord we pray that you would use so Father these funds for your work also to bless others who are in need both of material blessings as well as in need of you just pray all this in Jesus' holy and precious name just celebrated a communion and given an offering to the Lord? What is it that holds us back from consecration? Lack of faith? Lack of fight? Lack of fear? Many years ago, during the reign of Queen Victoria in India, India, known as the Punjab, came under the British crown. The young Maharaja, then a mere boy, sent an offering to his new monarch, the queen. This something called the Koino diamond. Uh, I've actually got a picture of it on the slide, but I'm not sure whether it can be put up now. The Koino diamond. It's 109 carat. And it's placed on the crown jewels. That's of the queen, the royal, uh, all the royal jewelry in the Tower of London. Some of you might have seen this. It's the one in the middle of the crown. Several years later, the Maharaja, now a full-grown man, came to England and visited Buckingham Palace, asking to see the queen. And he was shown to the state apartments. And after making his obeisance to his Majesty, to Her Majesty, he asked that he might see this Koino diamond. And the queen, out of courtesy, gave orders that the jewel should be brought and that it should be brought under armed guard from the Tower of London to Buckingham Palace. And in due time, this beautiful jewel arrived and was carried to the state apartments and handed to the Maharaja, while all present watched eagerly to see what he would do. And taking this priceless jewel with great reverence, he walked to the window and then he examined it carefully. And then as the onlookers still wondered, he walked back with it, clasped in his hands, and knelt at the feet of Queen Victoria. Madam, he said, 
I gave you this jewel while I was a child, too young to know what I was doing. I want to give it to you again in the fullness of my strength, with all my heart and affection and gratitude now and forever, knowing or fully realizing all that I do. Shall we pray? Before we sing the response song, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. What is it that holds us back from committing ourselves to Him, to consecrating ourselves to Him fully? He has paid the price, 100%. Given His life for us, redeemed us, saved us from our sins, our guilt. Is it a lack of faith? Lack of faith in His ways, that His ways are above our ways, that the things that He asks us to do is just so incomprehensible, sometimes so juvenile, if we think about it in human terms. We cannot accept it. It's foolishness. But Paul tells us, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. Or is it a lack of fight? It's too much to sacrifice. Too much to give up. Or is it a lack of fear? That we do not truly know this God whom we worship. The great and awesome God. The one whom Isaiah and Ezekiel and John the Apostle and Moses, and Joshua, and many other saints and men of old fell down at their feet in worship, in terror, because our God, as the Bible tells us, is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, if, if the Lord has spoken to you this morning, if the Lord has spoken to you in any way, and you want to respond and consecrate ourselves afresh to the Lord one more time you may think that I keep doing this Lord I want to commit myself but I keep doing it I fail I do it again yes keep doing it week after week if it takes because we want to respond in faith if you if the Lord has spoken to you if you have that tugging in your heart can I invite you to stand where you are as an act of obedience as a deed of response to the Lord can I invite you to stand where you are heads are bowed no one is looking this is not an embarrassing moment it is a moment between you and the Lord would you say like what this Maharaja said I give you my life when I was a child when I was baptized too young to know what I was doing I want to give my life to you again in the fullness of my strength with all my heart and affection and gratitude now and forever, fully realizing all that I do. Would you do that? It's not for me. It's not for Pastor Kokfai. It's not for the elders. not for the leaders of this church. It's just between you and the Lord. If the Lord has spoken to you, can I invite you make a stand before Him now so that the fire of the Lord may come upon us. Thank you. I invite all of us to stand as we sing the closing song.
होजाना from 
heaven above. See our hearts, Lord. See that the deep desire in each of our lives and each of our hearts is to know you more, to love you more, and to give ourselves more fully to you. We know that many things that hold us back, many doubts, many fears, many anxieties. We ask that you will deal with each and every one of them, so that we may truly consecrate ourselves to you afresh this morning. Thank you for loving us. We love you, Lord. As we go forth this day into the week ahead, as your beloved people, may your spirit rest upon us and guide our ways and direct our paths. In Jesus' name, Amen. The service is over. Thank you.